So inflation was, I guess, really hot, at least hot enough that the Federal Reserve is not going to stop its rate hikes. But we also had other quote unquote inflation data, producer prices, but maybe not in the place that you think that might be more relevant to the way in which the global economy, including the U.S. economy, is developing. We're also, I think, going to talk about today stocks in Hong Kong and why they're so directly tied to the U.S. Treasury yield curve. Is there some kind of connection there that we should all be aware of, especially since Hong Kong stocks are now, at least the Hang Seng Index, is the lowest it's been since 2009. So something may be going on there that we need to walk, we need to talk about. So we've got consumer prices, producer prices, global prices. It's pretty much everything last week. I'm Jeff. This is Eurodollar University. This is our weekly recap. Joining me as always, or at least as usual lately, Mr. Stephen Van Meter. But before we get to Steve, I've got to remind everybody, if you're watching this video on Emil Kalinowski's YouTube channel, you're going to want to wander over to the Eurodollar University YouTube channel because after maybe not much longer, these videos are going to be uh, uploaded exclusively at the Eurodollar University channel. If you're listening to us on Apple or Spotify or any podcast outlet, you don't need to do anything. Everything's going to remain the same there. And if you're already watching this on Eurodollar University's YouTube channel, thank you very much for wandering over there and, and maybe even subscribing and doing all the stuff that YouTube wants you to do. Okay, Steve, we got to start with the CPI, right? I mean, because that's pretty much what everybody talked about. The uh, U.S. CPI headline increased 8.2%, which was actually a little bit lower than in August when it was 8.26. But the core rate, the core rate scared the pants off of everybody because it accelerated to 6.63, not seasonally adjusted, 6.76 seasonally adjusted year over year, the highest in 40 years. It wasn't supposed to do that. Oh, my God, rate hikes forever, right? You got it, Jeff, right? The core is all that matters because when, when one headline goes starts trending lower, that actually would suggest that perhaps we're going to see a disinflationary environment, but no way because now the market says, don't worry about that one that's coming down. Focus on the core because the core leads the headline. But, you know, when I look at the charts, there's times it does, times it doesn't. What do you think? I think the core rate is being influenced by last year's real estate bubble. I, I, mean, I don't know how many people realize, and I, although maybe more people realize this than not because it's been talked about uh, quite a bit over the last couple of months, but owner's equivalent rent, which is a fake calculation that the BLS derives what they hope is a rent number, but it's taken from home prices. And home prices, as we know, accelerated wildly in 2021 and that after a leg, it takes a it takes a usually about twelve to eighteen months for home prices to begin to go to to show up in owner's equivalent rent. So what we're seeing in owner's equivalent rent and therefore influencing shelter prices overall is last year's housing bubble. And the the numbers have gotten really kind of ridiculous. The owner's equivalent rent was up, I think, six point seven percent year over year in September, whereas you know it started the year about four percent. So it's accelerating rapidly over the last few months, which is contributing a much uh, contributing a lot to the acceleration in the core rate, especially because owner's equivalent rent is roughly a quarter of the entire CPI, but a quarter of the CPI bucket is last year's housing bubble. So you have this weird situation where the Fed is hiking rates based on last year's numbers when this year's other stuff is already looking very different because you look outside of owner's equivalent rent and energy and food prices and the rest of the consumer price bucket 
uh, prices are still rising, but they're rising nowhere near the, the speed that they were. So this is a good point, Jeff, because right now we see the CPI print. We know with a fairly high degree of confidence, this puts the Fed into position November hike. I mean, there's no unless something significant changes between now and then, highly unlikely we get a hike, maybe a follow through in December. Everyone now saying December, January, uh, all the, the next three meetings are pretty much a guaranteed lock and hikes. But there's some other factors here. You mentioned energy. And this is a big part of the CPI. There's some other factors here, as you said, that they're still growing, but their trend growth, the year-over-year rate change is much lower and looking like, particularly, it's going to flatten out, maybe even go negative. But is this owner's equivalent rent, is this going to be something that shoves the CPI up or keeps it elevated for a couple months? Or do you think that maybe this is pretty much kind of the peak of that? Well, see, I think that's the issue is that, I agree. I think we have to look at what point do does owner's equivalent rent uh, or do the rest of the stuff in the CPI start to subtract more than owner's equivalent rent adds. And so the owner's equivalent rent simply delays the the maybe the, the Fed's pivot in terminal rates because it takes a little bit more subtraction from everything else before we see the Fed actually respond to that. And I think that's really the weird part here. Because the Fed is looking at the overall core CPI rate, which includes the statistical monstrosity, even if it doesn't represent the actual direction of the real economy, which I guess is really typical for the Fed. They're always looking at the wrong thing. But your point is valid. In terms of what the FOMC is going to do, it is based on the numbers that are there. They're not looking at these trends and saying, oh, the the other goods part of the uh, the consumer price bucket, that's trending lower so we're going to extrapolate lower prices because they don't want to get into that situation again where they get caught saying transitory and then everybody yelling at them because it didn't appear to be transitory. That's really the Fed is looking at this from a political perspective and saying we don't care if it's owner's equivalent rent or something else. The CPI is uncomfortably high and until it starts to become uncomfortable, not uncomfortably high, they're going to continue to write hike rates. <laughs> so what is it that might might uh, show up in the real economy that then shows up in the CPI that subtracts enough from consumer prices that it overwhelms this addition from owner's equivalent rent. And you, I, you and I know the answer to that because, we're, as you said, we're already starting to see it. Some of the goods prices, the inventory overhang, companies already saying we got to liquidate inventory and that kind of thing. Right. And you know, one of the things I look at, Jeff, I know you do, is gasoline prices are highly correlated with CPI on a year-over-year rate change. I know people say, but they're going up. Yes, but they're not going up as fast. You know, The key thing here, when we look at the CPI, we look at these year-over-year comps, what we're looking at, is it accelerating or decelerating or is it going negative? In this case, it's decelerating. Another thing, because we want to talk about producer prices that came up this week, was uh, import prices. On a year-over-year rate change, they're decelerating. But that, you're going to tell me, is has everything to do with producer prices, but not in the U.S., somewhere else. Yeah, you talk about correlation with prices in the direction of the real economy. And there isn't a better correlation out there that I'm aware of between the direction of the entire global economy and prices than Chinese producer prices. You look at the, the ups and downs in Chinese producer prices and they match what the global economy is doing almost perfectly, which makes sense, right? Because the Chinese buy all sorts of material from around the rest of the world. They assemble it into parts and sometimes finished goods and then send everything else to everybody else in the developed world. So 
China sits in basically the middle of the global economy. Of course, it's also investing in its own infrastructure, its own production capacity. So if the global economy is doing well in terms of end, end user consumer demand, China's building out factories and roads and infrastructure to service that manufacturing output, then we're going to see producer prices accelerate. We're going to see in the commodity markets where most of these producer prices come from. Conversely, if China's not doing well because it's not getting a lot of, uh, of extra demand from around the rest of the world, it's not investing in its own infrastructure and capital expenditures, then we expect producer prices in China to begin to decelerate and even decline. And Steve, I know you don't know the numbers, but for those who don't, uh, who, weren't, who didn't follow the release this week, China's PPI was up 0.9% year over year. So basically flat compared to last September. Factory gate price is a little bit higher, 2.6%. But these numbers have been trending, re, uh, decelerating very quickly. And it's almost certain that for October, we'll see China's PPI at a negative. So the trend in China's producer prices is basically leading the global economy toward what we think is happening, which is global recession. Yeah. So what you're paying, you know, kind of a macro picture here, Jeff, what you're telling us is that, hey, if you're looking at commodity prices, China being a massive, you know, importer of commodities, if you're starting to see them decelerate and flatten out, which we are, particularly we'll see crude oil here in the months to come struggle to try to keep up with any positive year over year comps, that translates into China yeah, producer. Even, even beside, we talked about this last, OPEC, right? The OPEC announced the oil price cut or oil production cut, and initially prices went up. Now they go right back down again. So, yeah. Right. And so then that translates into China PPI, which then turns into U.S. import prices. I want everyone to follow where this is going, because this is a really macro at heart of what you're looking at. That eventually gets into potentially U.S. producer prices and then to U.S. consumer prices. And so what, Jeff, what you're trying to tell us here is, look, while everyone believes that inflation is hot, going to go higher, the Fed's going to position for that, the probability start to lie is, again, and this is what the yield curves are telling us, what they've been telling us for so long is that the Fed is making a big mistake because they can't see far enough out because they're looking behind themselves that the probabilities weigh disinflation coming, perhaps deflation when we look at the year-over-year -year comps. And that means at some point, whether it's December, January, or you know, early in the next year, the Fed's going to find itself completely offsides and chasing interest rates lower, not higher. Yeah. And if it wasn't for that OER, the owner's equivalent rent, that may have, that may already happened. And I think, you know, regardless, the, the, the point is the markets are trying to figure out when the Fed actually turns around and you see all of these other things, including China producer prices trending lower. Some of them are lower rapid, going rapidly lower. It is, it, it, it gets to, is this just a matter of time for the Fed, right, Steve? It's, it's when it's not a question of if it's more a question of when. Right, because we see these massive curve inversions in the euro dollars futures curve, which you write extensively about, you know, heading into next year. It's like looks like a bloodbath. We now see that the two tens more inverted than the last, I think, three recessions. And something you you kind of mention in the lead of the show is that perhaps there's something correlated to all the, the to the yield curve that's telling us that perhaps we are very close to seeing a massive bear steepener, which some people say, well, that means rates are coming down. That's got to be real bullish. No, the answer is a bear steepener is not bullish. What, Jeff, what, what are you seeing out there that perhaps people don't even see this relationship? 
Yeah, well, what are the things we ask ourselves? What are the things that get consumer prices off their high? And there's macro stuff. There's the inventory overhang in the United States. There's production woes and all those things like that. But also, we have to pay attention to global dollar shortages, deflationary money. Nothing robs an eco economy of its vitality as much as deflationary shortfalls of money, in, in, especially in the euro dollar system, because that reaches everywhere, not just one place or another. You got a global dollar shortage. It's a problem for everybody. And so you look at a couple of different indications. Steve, we talk about repo fails, which, I mean, we could do a whole show on repo fails, especially recently, because they were just absolutely epic to end the last quarter. We had almost a trillion in repo fails for the final week in September, which, of course, I mean, we were talking about money. I mean, UK, guilt, all that stuff is related. And, of course, to begin October, I've talked about several times the Swiss National Bank. Suddenly now there's there's interest in dollar swaps uh, going through Swiss National Bank uh, US dollar liquidity auctions. Repo fails were still half a trillion for the first week in October. So there are, there are deflationary monetary signals out there. And deflationary money that goes into sort of a crisis situation is something that would lead the Fed to say, we need to stop hiking rates. And there's one thing that really kind of grabs my attention for a couple different reasons, and that's Hong Kong stocks. And you think Hong Kong stocks, what, what would that have to do with everything? Well, the Hang Seng Index and Hong Kong stocks tends to correlate very strongly with US dollar signals broadly. So something like the yield curve, for example, over the last couple of years, the Hang Seng Index has gone up when the U.S. yield curve has steepened and it has crashed as the U.S. yield curve has flattened and now inversion. In fact, Hong Kong stocks are as low as they've been since 2009. And that, you know, Steve, as you know, Hong Kong is a money center. It's this this nexus between China onshore, China offshore, this dollar, uh, this dollar node where the Chinese access the the the, uh, the wider, broader euro dollar system. So. If the Chinese are doing a lot of U.S. dollar business, there should be a lot of U.S. dollars hanging out in Hong Kong looking for, uh, you know, a place to be, a place to be invested. And Hong Kong stocks are where they used to go. So are you implying and this is important to understand because I, and I know people are going to go and they're going to start following, you know, the Hong Kong stock index. Are you suggesting that at this point, if we see a rally in Hong Kong stocks, that we see a bear steepener in the yield curve and rates in the U.S. crash? Or is there some potential other outcome that we should be looking at when we look over there? I think, you know, Steve, to me, it's more along the lines of Hong Kong, Hong Kong stocks going lower tells us that there isn't the dollars in Hong Kong that there, quote unquote, should be. Because look, China has record trade surpluses. And as we've heard, you know, those uh, those dollars that, that the Chinese are getting from the record trade surplus are not they're not showing up in China. They got to be somewhere. Right. And one logical place where they could be is offshore in Hong Kong, because Chinese offshore markets are Hong Kong. But they're not there either. Right. Because Hong Kong stocks are are crashing. Essentially, they're down something like 25 percent over the last couple months. And they're down more than 50 percent, I think, 60 percent now from last year. So the dollars are not in Hong Kong either. So that's telling us that the, the world is starved of dollars. The China is starved of dollars. And if it turns out, you know, where we see the consequences of that are not just the UK and the pound, but also more dollar auctions around the world, that's going to lead the Fed to say, we can't hike rates anymore. This Everything's going haywire. And so rather than look at a macro situation that turns the Fed around, maybe we have a money situation 
that turns the Fed around. So Hong Kong stocks continue to go lower. I would say, Steve, the probability that the Fed has to turn around, regardless of CPIs, regardless of any economic data, goes up. And I think that's why it correlates with the yield curve. You know, and I think this is a great point, Jeff, and I'm glad you went into that detail because, you know, right now everyone thinks that, okay, the economy is just slowing, the global economy is slowing, maybe in the months to come we see rates start to come down. But there's there's two things that stand out to me. One, you see very sharp moves in the dollar in history. Those are usually earmarked on the charts by a word, the word crisis or something crisis-like. Um Right. Not good. And then you have not as quite as common spikes in treasury yields in the same fashion. Those often all the same way marked by crisis or, as you said, something not good. Now we have both simultaneously. We see now at Hong Kong suggesting that dollars that should be there are not there. And there's just this massive vacuum or black hole that's sucking up all these dollars. It's turned my base case not into recession, but some form of bad news or a financial crisis. Oh, yeah, yeah. That's that's where your mind starts to wander, right? Because that's the path of least resistance. Um, I don't want to leave it on that 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 final thought. But and let, the other thing uh, that we could have talked about or we should add maybe just briefly is the IMF is sort of thinking the same way as you were, Steve, which is that the economy is not in a good place and it's heading in a bad place. The U.S. economy in particular, all sorts of IMF downgrades to global GDP, advanced economy GDP, in particular the U.S. GDP, because, you know, the, the economy is not looking all that healthy either. So if we're looking at what turns the what stops the Fed in the rate in terms of rate hikes, there's no shortage of potential causes. Right. And I think that's really where you get into if there's no shortage of potential causes, it's not just not good. You have to start thinking about, OK, what does that really mean? What is the potential downside here? Right. It's not a gradual or slow down. It seems like a wall is coming, um, but we can see that in other data. And maybe next week we'll we can get into that a little bit more. Yeah. OK. Yeah, that's that's I think a good place to leave it here. So we've got CPIs going in one direction for one reason, maybe last year's housing bubble. And then we got all these other things that are saying the Fed's got to stop. The Fed's got to turn around because the world is not moving in that direction whatsoever. It's not moving in an inflationary direction. It's more deflationary. All right. Thank you, Steve, for joining me. As always, a pleasure. Jeff, it is a pleasure, and I'll see you next weekend. Okay. Take care.